This is the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus what is the cost of a ransomware attack and what is the security risk assessment anyway. This is episode 10. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so you can better protect your business and identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nuwash Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at nuwashtech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. All right, we kick off every episode with Patch Tuesday update. The good news, there's no Patch Tuesday update this week. It is the end of December, the end of 2019. No new patches to report. If you missed previous episodes, then you've missed all the patches that did occur this month. There were quite a few for all major operating systems and a lot of software. So go check out episode 8 and 9 to learn about what patches you may have missed and get those patches updated. Um, This week I'm introducing, uh, it's not really a new segment, it's something I've wanted to do, but... um, haven't haven't uh, haven't had an opportunity but I'm, I do today. So we had a question sent in regarding HIPAA. Does a solo practitioner who does not accept insurance need to provide a NPP which is a notice of privacy practice and are they subject to HIPAA regulations? So that was the question. Uh the problem is there's not enough information in this question to to fully answer it, but here's what I will tell you. If you do anything that falls under HIPAA. In other words, do you transmit files? If you are working on a laptop and then you transmit files to a record-keeping system in the cloud, then you are now required to follow HIPAA practices. If you you store documents in the cloud, you are required to follow HIPAA. If you send an email to anybody that includes any type of potential PHI, you are required to follow HIPAA. Um, they do say that they do not accept insurance, so it's all all private pay, meaning the client pays. So if the client is paying, they're probably using a credit or debit card, so you are also obligated to follow PCI compliance. Um, we haven't talked much about PCI in this on this podcast, but we will eventually. Um, but PCI is a payment card industry set of compliance rules so that... Um, if you're storing payment information, you need to follow those those rules. So n- there's not enough information in in the question to to completely answer that question. Um, I would err on the side of caution and say yes, you need an MPP. Um, the OCR website, the HHS website, has, um, and I'll try to find it and include it in the show notes. But they have a a, a way for you to determine whether or not you need to follow. HIPAA and provide an MPP, but I would say err on the side of caution because in today's with today's technology and you know the potential for a breach and and uh, things like that, a solo practitioner one HIPAA violation could probably put them out of business. So I would err on the side of caution. Provide an MPP. It's really not complicated. And if you work with any other vendors, so do you have a, a um, you know, I don't know, it didn't say what kind of solo practitioner they are, but if you have a billing and coding specialist or, um, you know, 
an accountant or a or a bookkeeper or somebody who might see your or IT who might see your your PHI, then you absolutely need to have HIPAA in place. Um, the one thing they did ask is if they would be a covered entity and um, that questionnaire would help them. I, again, would err on the side of caution and say yes. Uh, HIPAA practice, HIPAA, HIPAA should actually be a little bit easier for a solo practitioner because you're in more control. But speak to a HIPAA, HIPAA consultant and find out whether or not it is relevant to your business. Um, without more information, I wouldn't be able to answer that completely, but that, that would be my feedback. Um, and I've shared that feedback already with the person who asked the question, and, it, and they've gotten feedback from other people, and they seem to be satisfied with my answer. So we're going we're gonna to leave it at that. All right, as we expected, it was a light news week for cybersecurity, given it was the Christmas holiday. We have a few things we'll share today. Um, first up, a note from the FBI regarding Locker Goga and Mega Cortex. So since January 2019, Locker Goga ransomware has targeted large corporations and organizations in the United States, United Kingdom, France, Norway, and the Netherlands. The Mega Cortex ransomware, first identified in May 2019, exhibits indicators of Compromise, command and control center, infrastructure, and targeting similar to Locker Goga. Um, so these are both ransomware variants, and um, they've issued some some tips to protect yourself, mitigate the risk. Uh, again, there's never a 100% foolproof plan. However, um, there are steps you could take to, to reduce the risk significantly, and these are very similar to any other ransomware, so I'm going to go through the list quick, quickly. First of all, have a backup and, dis uh, backup and disaster recovery plan. Backup regularly, test backups, and keep a backup offline. Ensure all software and operating systems are up to date. Enable two-factor authentica authentication and have a strong password policy. Uh, I'm going to stress that for a moment because I did report on yesterday's daily show that uh, China, there's a Chinese hacking group, APT20, that has uh, hacked two-factor authentication. And I say that because, no, nothing is foolproof. However, if you have two-factor authentication and strong password policy, then you, you reduce the risk even more. So, you know, having two-factor authentication is kind of pointless if your password is one, two, three, four, five, six. Have a strong password policy, uppercase, lowercase, alphanumeric, um, and special characters, and the longer the better, and that will help protect you against uh, potential compromises. Disable remote desktop protocol wherever it is not needed. Ensure re remote desktop protocols are blocked externally. Use a remote desktop protocol over VPN or use third and or use third-party software to further secure remote desktop protocol. Audit the creation of new accounts. So you should be monitoring for creation of new accounts. And if you see one, why is it being created? Who created it? What's it for? Etc. Run port scans to ensure unneeded ports are closed and nothing is listening that shouldn't be listening. Disable SMBV1. If you recall, that was the attack vector for WannaCry. Monitor Active Directory for access levels, account changes, and new accounts. Make sure you are using the most up-to-date PowerShell and un uninstall any older versions and enable PowerShell logging and monitor for unusual commands, especially execution of Base64 encoded PowerShell. Now, uh, you should be 
logging everything. So logins, logouts, cr- account creations, errors, the hard drive errors, um, storage. Um, there was one company, I don't remember who it was now, but there was one company who didn't discover they were being attacked until they ran out of storage and then realized something was wrong. So monitor storage space and um you know, all of those things should be monitored and logged and tracked. Somebody should be keeping an eye on those. There should be alerts set up when you reach a certain threshold so that it can be addressed in a timely manner. That's going to, that's the tips the FBI has released. Nothing really new there, but um, it's a good reminder. OCR issues guidance on targeted ransomware. This was on HIPAA Secure Now. Uh, So a partner of Nuage Tech. So we are all affected by bad cybersecurity. Pay attention. The health of your business depends on it. So this is really, this could be directed at any business. Where, wherever you fall in the food chain in the healthcare industry, cybersecurity needs to be at the forefront of your mind. That might mean you are a small doctor's office with a few patients, a large hospital, a technology company that supports healthcare clients, or many things in between. If healthcare is part of your success, you are a target to hackers. This goes beyond HIPAA. Your world of compliance needs to extend outside of making sure that you fall into line when it comes to HIPAA rules and regulations. Those standards will assist you should a breach occur and may even shine a light on areas of weaknesses within your business structure, but HIPAA compliance does not mean you are protected from a cyber attack. The Office for Civil Rights recently released insight into the threats and mitigation methods in their newsletter letter that emphasized this further. Recognizing that ransomware attacks have not been on the downslope for some sectors, the healthcare industry remains a constant and increasing target. The reason for this may be because patient information is needed on a regular and ongoing basis, thereby making the likelihood of demands being met quicker, more likely. Not to mention the array of information that can be obtained about individuals in a healthcare breach. And healthcare tends to be lacking when it comes to updated equipment and processes, making them an easy target to hack. Human error in large environments is more likely and smaller environments feel less threatened, mistakenly assuming that their businesses do not hold valuable data. Any data is valuable today. And that is very true. All businesses of all sizes are a, th- are, um, a potential victim. These attacks are not as immediate and as obvious as they once were, and they are much more tailored to target their victims. They have been found piggybacking into systems through ransomware, often going undetected for a while. Phishing also remains an easy entry point via unsuspecting or untrained employees. Big, big. The hacker can remain within a system for enough time to assess the structure and hit where it will hurt a business the hardest. OCR recognizes that having a solid HIPAA plan can help prevent, mitigate, and recover a business if it is in place and monitored on an ongoing basis. This means that as a business owner, office administrator, IT provider, etc., you need to ensure that you are regularly monitoring, I'm sorry, regularly maintaining both a robust cybersecurity and HIPAA compliance program. Like any good doctor will tell you, an ounce of prevention can go a long way. So that was on um, that was on HIPAA Secure Now's website on their blog uh, by Art Gross. So go check that out. Um, they you know, the, the OCR's recommendations are spot on. You cannot take any threat lightly, uh, no matter the size of your practice. And, you know, I just talked about a solo practitioner. So any practice of any size is a potential victim. And the hackers don't care what size the business is. They assume that larger businesses will pay quicker, but they're, 
you know, we've seen time and time again where the larger businesses can't pay and are forced out of business. Sometimes being a smaller business makes it more appealing to the hackers. Um, and again, I'm using the term hackers. It's really attackers. Hackers is, is not a good term. Hackers in general can be good or bad. All right, next up on Threat Post, this is reported uh, across multiple platforms, but um, I'm reading from Threat Post. There is a, a critical Citrix bug that puts 80,000 corporate lands at risk. So I talked about this earlier this week on the Cybersecurity Daily. Digital Workspace and Enterprise Networks vendor Citrix has announced a critical vulnerability in the Citrix Application Delivery Controller, ADC for short, and Citrix Gateway. If exploited, it could allow unauthorized attackers to gain remote access to a company's local network and carry out arbitrary code execution. The Citrix products, formerly known formerly the Netscaler ADC and Gateway, are used for application-aware traffic management and secure remote access, respectively, and are, and are installed in at least 80,000 companies in 158 countries, according to Mikhail Klyachigov, a researcher at Positive Technologies, the U.S., accounts for about 38% of vulnerable organizations. So that's a, those, that's a lot of businesses. This attack does not require access to any accounts and therefore can be performed by any external attacker, he noted in research released on Tuesday. This vulnerability allows any unauthorized attacker to not only access published applications, but also attack other resources of the company's internal network from the Citrix server. While neither... Citrix nor Positive Technologies released technical details on the bug, which is CVE 2019-19781. They said it affects all supported versions of the product and all supported platforms, including Citrix ADC and Citrix Gateway 13.0, Citrix ADC and Netscaler Gateway 12.1, Citrix ADC and Netscaler Gateway 12, Citrix ADC and Netscaler Gateway 11.1, and also Citrix Netscaler ADC and Netscaler Gateway 10.5, according to the research. Citrix applications are widely used in corporate networks, said uh, Dmitry Serbenikov, Director of Security Audit Department at Positive Technologies, in the statement. This includes their use for providing terminal access of employees to internal company applications from any device via the Internet, considering the high risk brought by the discovered vulnerability and how widespread Citrix software is in the business community. We recommend information security professionals take immediate steps to mitigate the risk. Citrix did release a set of measures to mi mitigate the vulnerability, including software updates, according to the researchers. And there's a link back to the Citrix list of mitigation steps. Um, the solution says, following configuration changes serve as a mitigation to the aforementioned vulnerability. For standalone system, there's some commands you can run and, um, and then ensure that the changes took place. On primary, again, there's some commands you can run. It looks like it's a lot of commands. Um, so you're going to want to go to that article from on the Citrix website, the support Citrix website, and uh, update as necessary. The vendor made security news earlier this year when cyber attackers used password spraying techniques to make off with six terabytes of internal documents and other data. So they probably used that information to compromise Citrix further this year. The attackers intermittently accessed Citrus infrastructure between October 13, 2018 and March 8, 2019, the company said. And the crooks principally stole business documents and files from company-shared network drive that has been used to store current and historical business documents as well as drive associated with 
as well as a drive associated with web-based tool used in our consulting practice. Um, so it doesn't really leave a warm and fuzzy feeling uh, with Citrix, and I know Citrix is widely used. I worked in a uh, the last, I always say the last real job I had. The last real job I had, we did have a Citrix environment, and I, I was part of the Citrix team. Um, and I know how widely used it is. So, uh, and it's in, in that particular company used it across multiple countries. So, um, it's a big vulnerability. And if you're, if you use it, if you have Citrix environment, make sure you take care of it and update it and, and mitigate the risk. All right. On bleeping computer, new Magellan 2.0 SQLite vulnerabilities affect many programs. I reported this this morning on our daily show as well. So SQLite is used in a lot of software packages and operating systems, including Google Chrome, Mozilla Firefox, and Windows 10. We had heard about some, you know, Google Chrome. Google Chrome, there was an update to, to mitigate that risk, uh, I believe, last week. Um, there's been two updates to Google Chrome this month, so one of those updates addressed this risk. It also affects Mozilla Firefox, Windows 10. Um I don't believe Windows 10 was patched for SQLite 2.0 or SQLite uh, in the last patch Tuesday, so we'll look for that in in uh, January. Firefox, I don't believe has updated either, so we'll wait to see. But uh, with Google Chrome, there was an update, so if you have not updated Google Chrome to the latest version, you're going to want to do that. Um, they can the remote attacker can use the vulnerability to compromise a computer that is through Google Chrome. Not a sh I'm not sure what the I would assume the impact is the same across other software. So once again, case for if you have uh, software updates available, then apply those updates. Finally, on bleeping computer, something I just want to talk about. So Windows 10 2004 is the latest will be the latest um, feature update that will come out in the spring of 2020. And it has a bunch of improvements. I'm not really going to go through all the improvements because there are a lot of them. If you want to read more about that, it's, it will be on bleepingcomputer.com and it will be in the show notes. The link will be there. Um, some of the cool things I will tell you is that it is added, it is upgrading task manager so that you can monitor a little more if you don't use any remote monitoring tools. Um, and uh, there's go they're going to include passwordless experience. Some of you may already be using this, depending on what you have for a device. So instead of uh, passwords, you can use fingerprint or a PIN um, or Windows Hello experience. Um, I don't use Cortana. I always disable Cortana, but there will be a new, new Cortana experience. And so there's a the network status page is going to be a little bit different. There is, uh, but there is a bunch of new feature updates coming in the spring of 2020 for Windows 10 users. So be on the lookout for that. Hopefully they don't break anything. All right, that's it for the cybersecurity news for this week. Let's move on to our hot topics for the week. All right, like I said, it was a holiday week, so there's not a lot to report or talk about. We did not add a new blog post to the Noir's Tech site this week. Um, we'll try to get one up next week. But I did find an interesting article on The Verge about Facebook's new preventative health tool pushes people to advocate for their health. Um, and this was actually posted back in October. I'm not sure how I missed it. 
uh, until now. I don't really read The Verge, so that might have something to do with it. And I haven't seen this. I think it is something you need to opt into. Um, but starting October 28th, Facebook will let users choose to get personalized reminders about healthcare tests and vaccines. The company's new preventative health tool focuses on getting people information about cancer screenings, heart checkups, and flu vaccines, all measures that could help, hopefully help people catch deadly conditions long before they become lethal. The tool is simply called Preventative Health and is now available to Facebook users in the United States. It takes a user's age and sex from their Facebook profile, which is maybe why I don't have it available to me because I didn't put my birthday on Facebook, and that's a whole other topic, by the way, um, and and uh, provides them with a list of recommended screenings based on those two data points. So let's say you're 52 years old. Freddie Abnosi, Facebook's head of healthcare research, tells The Verge. I mean, the fact that Facebook has a healthcare research department, that, that that's a little, I don't know, that seems a little scary to me. Uh, we already talked about how Google's partnered with Ascension to... Um, on some project that involves PHI for a bunch of people, uh, that that seems a little overboard for Facebook too. So I would, you know, I would say this might be a cause for concern. And where does that leave them in the HIPAA realm? Um, one of the things that will come to you based on the American Cancer Society's recommendation is that you should have a col colorectal cancer screening. Avnusi says that the app will then give you more information about what kinds of tests are available from a colonoscopy to a stool test or a CT scan. Avnusi hopes that users will then take what they learned and talk to their primary care physician about what would be best for them. So it doesn't sound like they're actually collecting information. They're just using your birthday and, and gender to say, hey, you need to go do this. This marks Facebook's second venture into health-related tools and an other effort promoting local blood drives launched in the United States in June after debuting in India in 2017. Overall, both of these tools make a far more simple entry into the health space than other tech giants have made. Amazon has been getting into online pharmacies and electronic health records, so Amazon is opening up a can of worms for themselves too. Apple's monitoring your heartbeat, which uh, there is an act in legislation now uh, regarding that so it's not just apple there's you know fitbit google's trying to buy fitbit so fitbit does the same thing and there, and i have a, a samsung watch that does the same thing uh in contrast face facebook um latest entry is basically enhanced reference pages from official websites matched together with a calendar reminder and tailored to broad demographics instead of individuals so i guess that uh, that's not really phi um i just wonder why they're even getting into the healthcare. I mean, is it, is Facebook trying to be the one one stop platform on the internet? Is there are they trying to be the new AOL? I guess, or are they just um, is this entry into something in the future? So that remains to be seen. It's interesting to me that they ha want anything to do with healthcare at all. Um, you know, given you know, could you imagine if Facebook violated? You know, Facebook had a HIPAA breach. For some reason, they were storing HIPAA and they had a HIPAA breach. And do we not think at this point that, that uh, they would be severely fined um, and sued for that matter? But it doesn't sound like they're collecting PHI at this point. So I, it's a simple reminder tool. If you're not using your calendar, then here, here's another way. Now, I mentioned that I don't keep my, my birthday on Facebook, and I know most people do. And here's why I don't. It is a way for 
potential attackers, social engineering um, to occur, you know, your fi- if your phone number, and I've seen still a lot of accounts with phone numbers, email addresses, and then your birthday, and then maybe where you live, and this is enough information to do some social engineering, do some digging around. Now, I know today, to you know, end of 2019, I know that information and privacy is 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 almost uh, non-existent at this point. However, let's let's not make it easier for the social engineers of the world, the hackers of the bad hackers of the world to take advantage of that information. So I do not keep my birthday on Facebook. Um, here's a, an article that I found, um, actually was shared in a Facebook group I'm in. Um, ransomware attack forces Arkansas CEO to fire 300 employees days before Christmas. Now, there are two sides to this coin, but I'll get into the story first. So the CEO of a telemarketing company in Sherwood, Arkansas, has let go of 300 employees after the company failed to recover from a ransomware infection months back. In a deeply apologetic letter to employees, the Heritage Company CEO, Sandra Frenecki, said two months ago their servers were attacked by a Hackers who demanded a ransom to unlock the systems. Despite paying the attackers what they demanded, the company struggled to get back on its feet. The company could no longer pay wages, so the CEO decided to close shop and let everyone go. And so the local news station down in uh, Arkansas obtained a letter, the letter that was written to the employees. So the local news station is KATV. And then the letter is here. Uh, I'm not going to read the letter, but the letter does sound... Like, you know, it sounds very sincere and heartfelt. Um, here's, so then I'm going to continue from after the letter. Interviewed by reporters, one disgruntled employee, Dave Denny said, let your employees know something. Give them a chance to make our own decisions for ourselves, not really take our own lives in your own hands and basically play God with everybody's lives. So a disgruntled employee, and that makes sense. So, you know, something happened two months ago, then why are you waiting until right before Christmas to tell everybody? The layoff comes mere days before Christmas, leaving many unsure if they will start 2020 with a job. The CEO asks everyone to check back on January 2nd to see if they will get their jobs back, which that seems a little shady as well. Maybe shut down for Christmas, save a few dollars. I don't know. This is not the first time ransomware shutters a business in the United States this year. Brookside ENT, ear, nose, and throat, and Hearing Center, a doctor's office in Battle Creek, Michigan, was forced to close its doors after hackers infected its systems with ransomware compromising everything from patient records to billing information. Unlike the Heritage Company, Brookside ENT did not pay the ransom, likely figuring the incident would have the same outcome anyway. Uh, and I did report on that earlier this year. Um, these attacks are, and many others reported in the past year alone, underscore the dire need to protect any business, big or small, from ransomware. So here's where, uh, here's where I have a problem. So sad for the 300 employees and uh, apparently the so in the letter it says that their IT is still working to try to fix the issue two months later I, why not just wipe the dry wipe and and uh, install clean because it doesn't obviously they didn't have backups and so that's where I'm going to go with this you have 300 employees what is the IT in this in this business I mean there should be backups there should be off-site backups of anything that's critical. Um, it should you should have um, 
mitigation steps, you know, how did the ransomware get in? We don't know. It doesn't say. My guess would be a phishing attack. So did we train our employees on phishing? Do we have any phishing mitigation in place? Um, you know, 90% of all ransomware attacks start with a phishing attack. So is that what happened here? Sounds like maybe it did. And we know from past ransomware attacks, you don't pay the ransomware because there's no guarantee they're going to give you give you your, your files. There's no, there's no guarantee they're going to decrypt anything. Um, and here's the weird part. So they gave away th seven cruises the week before they laid everybody off. I don't know. You know, they say they paid for these in July, but I would imagine they could have at least gotten some money back for those cruises and paid to maybe pay for a third party to come in and resolve the issue. I know there's some, there's definitely some poor planning going on here. The other reason I'm sharing this is it does, it does show the, um, potential devastation that a ransomware attack can have. So 300 employees fired, not really fired, laid off right before Christmas. Now, given the circumstances, they're going to be eligible for unemployment, I would assume. Um, but the devastation this is going to have on 300 families right before Christmas is, I mean, I don't. How do you even put that into words? You you can't. And so this is the this is what we're we're playing with people's livelihood when we're not addressing the ransomware the ransomware scourge that is occurring right now. There is there you know ransomware is not specific to any industry. I know I talk a lot about healthcare, but it's not specific to any industry. They are opportunists. They will take whatever they can take. As you can see, the ransom was paid, and they still didn't decrypt the files. They will attack whatever they can attack. If you leave one little hole open, they're going to try to exploit that hole. You you need to uh, ensure that your business, for your own livelihood and for those of your employees, that you're protecting everything. And so I'd read earlier in this podcast, I went through a list of things that you can do to mitigate the potential uh, a potential ransomware attack. Those things need to be in place, and then some education. And, you know, you're, you're playing with people's lives when you don't address the concern. Um, you wouldn't leave your front door open, um, you know, if, if, your area, if you live in an area where crime does exist. You would not leave your front door open. You're leaving the front door of your business open if you're not doing anything to mitigate the risk. I'd feel a lot better about this had IT done what they were supposed to do. And you could tell they didn't because they would be able to restore from backup if they did. All right, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Let's move along. Uh, final article kind of touches on the question that I answered earlier about uh, solo practitioner and HIPAA and MPP requirements. Five things small practices need to know about HIPAA. This is on webpt.com. This blog post uh, doesn't have a date on it, which is actually an SEO technique. But, um, yeah, I don't see a date, so I'm not sure when it was written, but it's relevant. So let's go through the list here, five things that that uh, small practices need to know about HIPAA. The first, you can only become a covered entity by performing a covered trans transaction. That's it. And that's what I touched on earlier. Do you electronically transmit patient information related to covered transactions? Covered transactions generally include the electronic transmission of claims. Um, so if you don't have insurance, then... You don't have to worry about it. But if you're transmitting files electronically to anywhere else, 
than you do. And then I do have a link here to HHS's online tool to evaluate your status. If so, you are a covered entity or is required to comply with HIPAA. But if you're not a covered entity, you can stop worrying. You can't accidentally become a covered entity unless you engage in a covered transaction. I hear lots of myths about fluidity of a provider's covered entity status. Does using email make you a covered entity even if you don't do electronic billing? No, because your email isn't a covered transaction. But that's not true because you can be fined by HIPAA for having PHI in email. If you're not a covered entity, but you intake forms reference HIPAA, does that obligate you to follow HIPAA? No, because you're as a non-covered entity, HIPAA doesn't apply to you. Remember that there's only one way to fall to within the scope of HIPAA performing a covered transaction. One caveat, if you tell your patients that you'll comply with HIPAA's requirements, you should do so. This doesn't mean that you become a HIPAA covered entity. It simply means that you should subject yourself to HIPAA's privacy and security requirements because you promised your patients you would do so. For example, if you're not a covered entity, but your notice of privacy practices states that you will use only HIPAA-compliant email software, then you should use HIPAA-compliant email software, not because HIPAA requires it, but because you said you would. Number two, you must have written privacy policies. Uh, these are myths, by the way, or these are things you need to know, by the way. HIPAA-compliance audits are many provider's greatest fear, but they're absolutely something for which you can prepare, as explained here, and there's a link to another blog post on the HHS Gov site. Every covered entity and business associate is eligible for an audit. Audits can be random or targeted. Now, at this point, audits tend to be after a breach uh, or after some gross negligence. Um, every covered entity and business associate is eligible for an audit. Audits can be random or targeted. I just said that. Uh, the policies and procedures adopted and employed by covered entities and their business associates to meet selected standards and implementation specifications for the privacy, security, and breach notification rules. Don't have any so, such policies, then um, HIPAA requires that all covered entities maintain written privacy policies and procedures addressing HIPAA's three main components, privacy, security, and breach notification. To ensure the best protection against HIPAA audits, your policy should address each of the requirements imposed by these three um, components of the law. Government regulators are more likely to audit small practices which are more likely to fall short of HIPAA requirements. And a failure to maintain adequate policies and procedures is one of the biggest reasons that practices are fined, uh, meaning you're being negligent. While privacy policies are required, they are not a mere formality. In fact, they come with some pretty good benefits, including providing you with accessible answers to privacy-related questions like how should I discipline an SP SPT who shared my patient's private information at a PT pub night. Uh, disclaimer, my HIPAA policies don't typically address this specific situation, but they would give you enough guidance to problem solve it yourself. How long should I retain patient records? How complex does my web PT password need to be? Can all members of my clinic share a, a single computer login? What do I do with an old laptop? Can I use the Wi-Fi at Starbucks? Uh, by the way, that last one. For, well, the last two. The laptop should be disposed of properly. And do not use the Wi-Fi at Starbucks. Um, number three, required risk assessments will help you tailor HIPAA compliance safeguards to your practice needs. And that's in incredibly true. We're going to talk about the HIPAA security risk assessment in a moment. Um, 
HIPAA isn't one size fits all. So when you run a security risk assessment, you're looking for areas of opportunities, essentially. And um, it is requirement once a year or if there's any changes. Um, so let me, let me, I'll get more into that when we get to that portion of the podcast. But it is requirement at least once a year. Number four, without written policies, simply distributing a notice of privacy practices document to patients doesn't make you HIPAA compliant. Uh, also true. You have a lot to do to become um, HIPAA compliant. In, if you just distributing this MPP isn't enough. It's not even close to enough. And finally, number, number five, you must have HIPAA agreements with anyone who handles your patient information. This is extremely true now. Uh, we talked about this last week. Um, in the HIPAA education portion of the, sh- of the podcast, you if you have business associates and that business associate has a subcontractor and it just goes all the way down the food, train, food chain, everybody needs to be HIPAA compliant. You need a business associate agreement for everybody who is potentially in contact with your PHI. Um, there are some practices that will go so far as to give require a business associate agreement for every every vendor that they interact with um if um you know if let's say you have uh, an msp managing your network your computers and so forth and they through them you have uh, office 365 then you should have a business they should have they are office 365 is the vendor for the it company they need a business associate agreement from off from microsoft and you need a business associate agreement from the IT vendor, uh, and that's how it works. You have to have if you if it's not in place, you're you're not complying with HIPAA, and you're putting your your practice at risk of being fined at the very least. And what we're seeing is a trend now where where um, people that are impacted by HIPAA breaches are also being sued. So not really something you want to play with. You're going to want to ensure that you have business associate agreements in place before you begin working with any vendor. All right, let's look at the HIPAA breach notifications for the week. Again, not a lot to report because it is uh, a holiday week. I would imagine next week will be the same. But here's what we have. So uh, December 26th, New, Me- New Mexico Hospital discovers malware on an imaging server. So they found malware on a radi- radiological imaging server that had around 500 patients' information on it. Malware infection was discovered on November 14th. Um, so just over a month for them to, to disclose. So good job there. Prompt action was taken to isolate the server to prevent further unauthorized access. And then, of course, they updated the machine to make sure that uh, there were no more vulnerabilities on the machine. So all around, and this is at Roosevelt General Hospital in Portales, New Mexico, by the way. So all around, it wasn't, uh, I would say it was a good job by the IT at New Mexico Hospital. I'm sorry, at uh, General Hospital in Portales, Roosevelt General Hospital. Um, They recovered quickly. They isolated and they reported quickly. So on December 24th, Christmas Eve, we have two. The state of Colorado is notifying 12,230 individuals about an impermissible disclosure of some of their protected health information as a result of a mailing error. Essentially, they sent 10,879 
notice to reapply forms with the wrong information out. Um, they sent it to incorrect individuals. The information of 12,230 individuals had been incorrectly included on those forms. They don't believe that PHI was disclosed, but to, to be on the safe side, they are notifying and providing credit monitoring services for 12 months. Sinai Health System phishing attack reported. Chicago-based Sinai Health System has discovered the email accounts of two of its employees have been compromised as a result of responses to phishing emails. No information has been disclosed about the date of the attack and when it was discovered, but Sinai Health System has reported that third-party computer forensics experts determined on October 16, 2019, that the compromised accounts contained PHI, which was potentially accessed by the attackers. So here we go one more time with PHI in email and no f lack of phishing mitigation, including multi-factor authentication. Um, they do believe that 12,578 records were involved. And let's see if there's anything else for this week. No, that's it. It's just the three this week. So uh, quiet week for HIPAA breaches too. Right, it's time for our HIPAA education piece. As I mentioned earlier, this is we're going to talk about the security risk assessment today. Um, a couple of quick notes about it. First of all, the HIPAA risk the HIPAA risk assessment should be done at a minimum of at least once every twelve months, but it should also be done if there's any changes made, like you have new new staff, new employees, especially um, upper level management changes. Um, new equipment, new departments, um, anything like that, but also should be done if the first assessment uncovers something that needs to be addressed and you address that, then you should do another one to make sure. And it should be done until everything is addressed, essentially. So it's ongoing, but at a minimum of every 12 months. Uh, and that's required by OCR. It covers three areas, administrative, physical, and technical, so I know it sounds like it should be security risk. It should be just technical, maybe physical, but it's it's administrative, physical, and technical. And then the six mo most common causes for breaches, you have snooping, negligence, human error, intentional targeting through ha hacking, ransomware, and phishing. Unintentional targeting, also phishing. So spear phishing means it was a, they, were, they were seeking out that target um, unintentionally means they're just hoping that somebody does something and then identity theft. Um, so what is required for a HIPAA risk assessment? A HIPAA, yeah, wow. Learn how to talk today. HIPAA risk assessment. So the requirement for covered entities to conduct a HIPAA risk assessment is not a new provision of health insurance portability accountability act. The requirement was first introduced in 2003 in the original HIPAA privacy rule and subsequently extended to cover the administrative, physical, and technical safeguards of HIPAA security rule. In 2013, the final omnibus updated the HIPAA security rule and breach notification clauses of the High Tech Act. The new regulations further extended the requirement to conduct a HIPAA risk assessment to business associates and also increased the amount of a covered entity a covered entity or business associate could be fined for non-compliance with HIPAA regulation. And that, and that is tiered. So you have uh, levels based on what HHS determines 
you are culpable for. So if, if it seems as though it's unintentional, uh, the fines are less if it's unintentional. And if it if you're completely negligent and repeated um, repeated failures, then your fines are going to be a lot more severe. Um, the failure to conduct a HIPAA risk assessment can be costly. By the way, I'm reading this on HIPAAjournal.com. Uh, and the reason I'm using HIPAA Journal instead of HHS site, I, I've said this in previous episodes, it's it's easier to understand um, because they're not using a lot of legal term terminology. Uh, the severity for fines for noncompliance with HIPAA has historically depended on the number of patients affected by a breach of protected health information and the level of negligence involved. Few fines are now issued in the lowest did not know HIPAA violation category because there is little excuse for not knowing that organizations have an obligation to protect PHI. So you can't really claim ignorance anymore. It's like if you're on a highway and the speed limit is 55 and you're doing 85 and you get pulled over, you can't claim you didn't know. More recently, the majority of the fines have been under the willful neglect HIPAA violation category where organizations knew or should have known they had responsibility to safeguard their patients' personal information. Many of the largest fines included including the record $5.5 million fine issued against the Advocate Healthcare Network, are attributable to organizations failing to identify where risk to the integrity of PHI existed. However, since the start of the second round of HIPAA audits, fines have also been issued for potential breaches of PHI. These are where flaws in organizations' security have not been uncovered by a HIPAA risk assessment or where no assessment has been conducted. So when they come in, they're going to ask you for proof of those risk assessments and if you don't have them or you know it's just a checklist then you didn't do it um in their eyes you didn't do it and with that being said uh, it you also when when hhs comes in to audit they may provide technical information they may say here's what you need to do to resolve this issue go fix it and then come back and check to make sure you did fix it and if you didn't fix it, then they're going to fine you even more. Um, so keep that in mind before you just say, okay, they, we're, they're out of our hair because they're not out of your hair. It's not just large medical organizations in the firing line, and it's not just medical organizations in firing line. So in other words, it's not just large hospital networks. It's every practice, no matter the size. It could be a, a three-person practice with – 10,000 records and you're still and which is considered a small practice you're still you're still potentially um going to be audited especially it just takes one complaint one person to say hey uh my information was was um given out incorrectly to someone or you know or it could be as simple as they asked for their medical records and you didn't provide it within a certain amount of time and they got fed up and called and it's not just medical organizations in the firing line either. It's it's uh, MSPs like like the one I own. It's it's uh, any business associate, you know, accountants, billing billing professionals, um, any uh, any business that could potentially view PHI is also required to have a, a risk assessment in place. Okay, so what should a HIPAA risk assessment consist of? The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services acknowledges that there is no specific risk analysis methodology. This is due to covered entities and business associates varying significantly in size, complexity, and capabilities. However, HHS does provide an objective of HIPAA risk assessment to identify 
potential risks and vulnerabilities to the confidentiality, availability, and integrity of all PHI that an organization creates, receives, maintains, or transmits. In order to achieve these objectives, the HHA suggests an organization should identify where PHI is stored, received, maintained, or transmitted, identify and document potential threats and vulnerabilities, assess current security measures, measures used to safeguard PHI, assess whether the current security measures are used properly, determine the likelihood of a reasonable anticipated threat, determine the potential impact of a breach of PHI, assign risk levels for vulnerability and impact combinations, document the assessment and take action where necessary. A HIPAA risk assessment is not a one-time exercise. Assessments should be reviewed periodically, and as new work practices are implemented or a new technology is introduced, HHS does not provide guidance on the frequency of reviews other than to suggest that you may be conducted annually. They may be conducted annually depending on an organization's circumstances. So essentially they're saying do it at least once a year. Do the requirements of business associate to conduct risk assessments being introduced in an amendment to the HIPAA security rule? Many covered entities and business associates overlook the necess necessity to conduct a HIPAA privacy risk assessment. A HIPAA privacy risk assessment is equally as important as a security risk assessment, but can be much larger undertaking depending on the size of the organization and nature of its business. So the separate from the security risk assessment, the privacy risk assessment, um, And finally, there is a tool on HHS, HHS's website that will help you conduct a security risk assessment. Um, it's pretty simple. You download it. It's Windows only. But you download it, install it on Windows. You run it. It asks you a bunch of questions. You fill in the answers. And, um, you know, kind of like a checklist. But, however, it shouldn't be treated as a checklist. So if you find, you, if you find areas of vulnerabilities... You need to address them, whatever it might be, whether it's the front desk receptionist doesn't lock her computer or uh, we're not using phishing mitigation at all. We haven't educated our staff on phishing or you haven't patched a Windows server that's storing PHI, uh, even if it's not storing PHI because it could be a, a gateway into your network. These are these are all potential things that need to be addressed. Um, you know, I've seen... I once walked into a clinic where they had a clipboard at the front window where you were supposed to write your name and why you were there. Um, you know, that's a violation. So it could be as simple as that. Uh, if you don't have an area where you can have a conversation with your patient where not everybody else is going to hear it, that's a violation. You know, that's a, ri that's a risk because PHI could potentially be exposed. And by the way, I see that a lot. I see that a lot in pharmacies. So that um, in pharmacies are supposed to be covered under HIPAA. So you know you're going to want to you're going to want to look at those things and and address them as they come up. That is going to do it for this episode of the Proactive IT Podcast. It's a little bit shorter this week because not a lot to report. I hope that the HIPAA education piece or any other bit of information you found in this podcast is helpful. Um, as always, come check out our website at nwajtech.com. That's nwajtech.com. We have lots of information, blog posts. This podcast is hosted there. We also have a daily podcast that is not hosted there. Go check that out. Uh, it's it's on a bunch of platforms. I record it on Anchor. So 
check that out. Um, and until next Friday, hey, ha- everybody have a good new year. And I will talk to everybody next year and next decade.